Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Time for worship. Time for worship. Malachi is a prophet. He wrote these words maybe 500 years before Jesus was born. And some of you are going, well, I wasn't alive then, so I have no idea what that means. And some of you are going, oh, I remember that. Um, 500 years before Jesus was born. Well, what does that mean in terms of history? And uh, maybe I can make reference to Old Testament history. And if uh, this is a little foreign to you, that's fine. Just go home this afternoon and read the Old Testament. You'll be fine. So you know kind of how the Old Testament works. Genesis, God calls Abraham, and then he calls Isaac, and he calls Jacob. He brings to himself a people, the people of Israel. They end up in Egypt at the beginning of books of Exodus. By the end of the book of Exodus, they're wandering around the desert, having escaped Egypt. Joshua, Judges, they make their way into the Promised Land. First and Second Kings, they have a couple of good kings, mostly lousy kings. Right? Okay. Have we summarized it pretty good? Okay. Um, Finally, at the end of all these terrible, terrible kings, the people of Israel have abandoned God, have abandoned his promises, and God had made it quite clear to them, if you abandon my covenant promises, I will do whatever it takes to draw you back to my covenant promises, up to and including kicking you out of the promised land. And that's precisely what happened uh, six or seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. Malachi is writing when a small group of people have made their way back to the promised land. They had been kicked out of the promised land. Now they had made their way back to the promised land. A guy named Nehemiah has rebuilt some of the walls. Everybody remember Nehemiah? And a guy named Ezra has helped rebuild the temple. And these people moved back to the promised land. They have city walls around the city. They have a temple that has been built. And a couple of prophets have come along, a guy named Zechariah and a guy... Uh, another guy with a funny name. Um, and they said, don't worry, the Lord is coming, right? You've come back to the land. The Lord is faithful to his people and he's faithful to his covenant promises. And some time has gone by and everybody kind of got excited. Yay, the Lord's coming. And now a few years have gone by, maybe a few decades have gone by and say, yay, the Lord's coming, right? And that's when Malachi writes. He goes, they have forgotten what God is up to because God wasn't following their timetable. The Lord is coming and they have no idea that even when Malachi is writing, it's still another 500 years. And he wants to reset their hearts. He says, it is still the time for worship and the problem isn't God. It is still time to worship and the problem isn't God 
And we all know exactly what the problem is. But let's start with the words of Jesus to help think about this as we get started. In Matthew chapter 22, and he said, well, why would you go all the way to Matthew in the book of Malachi? It's not that far. It's the next book. It's just like two or three pages over. Matthew chapter 22, this guy comes up to Jesus. He was a Pharisee, uh, and he was a lawyer. I know, double hit, really, on that one. Just... (laughs) You don't invite that guy over for drinks, that's for sure. What a, what a load. And you know what kind of guy this is. He comes up and he's going to ask Jesus a question. He has no uh, interest in gaining information. He has interest in making Jesus look foolish, stupid, or a heretic. Uh, and so he says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And listen to Jesus' answer, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus adds this. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Another way of saying this. Without these two commandments, you can't do anything God wants you to do. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying, the heart is what matters. The heart is what matters. Not what you do per se. What you do matters, but it doesn't matter if your heart's not in the right place. It's time for worship, and the problem is not what is God up to. The problem is what's going on in my heart. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and read what Jesus was quoting. He said, well, I thought we were going to be in Malachi. Keep up. Come on. Deuteronomy. If you're not sure where Deuteronomy is, your Bible is equipped right near the front. It's a table of contents. Use that thing. That's great. If you're using your phone, then you just look up Deuteronomy. It starts with a D. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. What he is saying, and one author has said it this way, and I think it's helpful. He wants us to love God with every part of our faculty, with every part of our capacity, with every part of our ability. He wants us to love God with our body by saying out loud, God, I love you. He wants us to love God with our actions by making choices and having priorities that reflect that we love God. But even more than that, he wants us to love God in our heart. He wants our hearts devoted to God. The fancy word for that is the feels. To have warm feelings towards God. To to have a sense in our heart, God is good, God is great, and because of who God is, I want to worship him by expressing love with my words and with my actions and with what my mind thinks about. And the problem with the people of Malachi is they wanted to love God with maybe just lip service, say, oh yeah, I love God, or maybe love God with a a few service projects they do. But in their heart, they harbored bitterness and coldness, maybe even resentment. Time for worship. How in the world are we going to change our hearts? Well, Malachi tells us. Go back to Malachi chapter 1. Some of you are saying, I never left. 
Good. Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Oracle, don't get freaked out. Just means the words of the prophet. Meaning he was given these words by God himself. And so Malachi comes to the people of Israel. And he's going to give them the words of God. And he's going to explain to them what it means for it to be time for worship. First of all, God's love then, now, and forever. Look what it says, the first part of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. We're just going to stop there. I have loved you, says the Lord. This is how the book of Malachi is organized. There's several, maybe half a dozen little statements that God is going to make, and then he's going to fill in the blank of what they're saying, okay? What do you mean? How's that work? You're sitting in your living room, your child comes out and says, Dad, Mom, yeah, I cleaned my room. Really? Let's go see if the reality matches the words, okay? And that's what he's doing. God is going to say, I have loved you, and then he's going to fill in the blank with what they're thinking. But how have you loved us? But we're going to say, time for worship, God's love. God begins to these people to communicate a message, God loves you and has loved you. There's a song in a musical, the musical is Sound of Music. Anybody seen this, this movie? I'm not embarrassed to say I've seen the movie. And there's one song in particular, song that she uses to teach the kids how to sing. It's called Do Re Mi. I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. Although, I think I could do a fair job if needed. But she's going to teach them to sing. And the phrase is something like this when they're getting ready to start. Uh, she says this, let's start at the beginning. That's a very good place to start, isn't it? And that's where we start with worship is the beginning. And the beginning is God saying this to us, I have loved you. That's the beginning. The starting point of worship of God is God has first expressed his love toward us. Think all the way back to creation, the beginning of Genesis. God creates the world. He creates water and he creates trees and he creates tasty animals. They're delicious. No, don't you wonder? Did God have to make steak taste good? No. Did he? This is a great God we serve. Okay. I just... And you think I'm being silly, but this is actually the point. God didn't have to make food taste good. He could have given us food that just tasted blah, but provided all the essential nutrients. He didn't do that. He wanted us to taste the food and say, this is, this is good. He wanted us to wake up in the morning and look out the window and see the snow frosting the tops of the hills. On Rogue. Have you ever seen that? Just kind of a dusting of snow and, and joy fills your heart. We live in a place where there's snow and you don't have to live in the snow. If I want the snow, I can drive up there and be in the snow and come home and not be in the snow. And your heart is well, it's beautiful and it fills your heart with joy. God didn't have to make mountains beautiful. He, but he chose to. He decided to make creation good, not only for himself, but that when we show up, we say, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. And he makes creation good, and he makes creation enjoyable. He makes creation beneficial. He makes creation designed as such that we have to engage with it. He told Adam and Eve at the beginning, order creation, have dominion over creation, name the animals, put things in order, add your personal touch to what I've done. God said, I've gotten this thing started, you finish it. So he, he put us here with purpose and work and engagement, and all of it was good, and he did all of these things not because he was bored. He did all of these things because he loves us, because that's the beginning. God loves us. So we grabbed one of those tasty fruits, and we ate it because God told us not to. 
And we said, God, we love your creation so much that we would rather have it than you. If there's any way we can have your goodness without having you, we will seek it. And so we rejected God and pursued our own ways and said, my way is better, not yours. I want to live my good life without God interfering. And so what did God do? He came to man and woman in the cool of the day and said, hey, guys, where are you? And then he provided them clothing to cover their shame. And then he told them, I promise you one day someone will come to fix this. He will crush the head, his heel will be bruised. So even when we rejected him and pursued all of his things and rejected him, did he say, I don't love you, I don't need you? No, the starting point of worship is God expressing over and over and again, I love you. So we leave the Garden of Eden knowing that God is going to make a way. And so we, first thing we do is try to build a city so that we don't need God anymore. Tower of Babel. And God says, no, 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 you're not going to do this without me. And he scatters us. Then he calls to himself his own people, the people of Israel, the people through which he will bring the Redeemer. And what, what do the people of Israel do? Even though you have called us out, God, by your love, we will reject you again and again and again. And even though... We weren't there. We need to be careful to remember we would have done the same thing. Over and over again, we turn against God, and over and over again, God turns toward us, and what we call that is God's love. Over and over and over again, being expressed to us till finally, at the height of our rebellion, Jesus comes and dies on the cross for us. Jesus pays the way so that all of our rebellion and sin can be covered over, and by faith we can receive forgiveness. Time for worship starts with God's love, and that started in the garden, but it reached its culmination on the cross. Jesus loves us because he died for us. Not only that, he says we get to live with him forever. Not only that, he was raised from the dead. So he says, not only are you forgiven, I'm going to prepare a place for you to live forever the way you were supposed to live. So this is God's love for us. Okay, now there's a catch to God's love. Are you ready? There's always a catch, right? Oh, you don't know what well, there is. Are you ready? God's love is primarily expressed to us through the cross, which means what about us? That we needed the cross, which means we're sinners. So the catch is this. If we don't need forgiveness, we will never feel and experience God's love. If we aren't that bad, then God does not love us that much. Jesus said as much. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 41. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 41. Jesus tells a little story. He says this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. Whoa. That's like a lot of money. One owed him, let's say, half a million dollars. The other one owed him a thousand bucks, okay? When they couldn't pay their debt, so one guy owes him a half a million bucks, the other guy owes him a thousand bucks, neither one of them could pay their debt. What the guy did, he said to both of them, I'm just going to cancel your debt. I mean, just, forget, just forget about it. There's no debt. It's erased. Now, the question is this, which one of them will love the moneylender more? The one who got lost, who 
uh, had a thousand dollars in debt eliminated, or the person who eliminated half a million bucks. And the answer is easy. Of course, the person who had this massive debt already, their life is completely changed, right? I mean, their life is completely different now. This massive debt that they could never afford is gone. The next day is totally different now. They don't have to make a massive uh, payment on it. They don't have to wonder where their money's going to come from. Now, the guy who was only forgiven a little bit of money, he's going to appreciate it, but he probably could have paid that off over time. It's not that big a deal. This is what Jesus said about a woman that he was talking with. He turned to a woman and he said, Do you see this woman? He was talking to a Pharisee named Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time uh, I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus' point was not that Simon had not done that much sin. His point was, Simon, you don't understand how big a sinner you are. And the person who has their eyes opened to the the realities of their own heart sees the grace of God and says, God, you are gracious that you would forgive someone like me? Are you kidding me? I see how much you love me. However, if I'm the kind of person who never makes any mistakes, and certainly my sins aren't as bad as the guy next to me or the person down the street, well, then I'm never going to really experience God's love because I'm convinced I don't need much of God's grace. And God is kind of lucky to have someone as good as me on his team, really. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I'm not in the paper. I'm not in jail. So this is the thing. This is what was happening to the people in Malachi's day, and this is what happens to us. We don't think God loves us very much, so it's hard to be moved to worship. And we wonder, how am I going to understand how much God loves us? And the way we understand how much God loves us is to finally come uh, face to face with how much we have been forgiven and how much we need God's grace day in and day out. Grace not needed is not received, and the fact is we need God's grace. Time for worship. God loves us. He expresses his love to us through his grace, and we miss his love when we really don't think we need his grace. Okay, back to Malachi chapter 1. Let's look at verse 2. God is not the obstacle to worship. The obstacle, it turns out, is our own heart. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. Now we're going to look at the second half of verse 2. And you may be thinking, look, Greg, Uh, We're now halfway through one verse. How long are we going to be here? And see, this just reveals the condition of your heart, you know. No, I'm kidding. I don't know the condition of your heart. Stay with it. We won't be here that long. All right. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Okay, try this out if you're married. Go up to your spouse, or next time your spouse comes up to you, says, I love you. And then just simply say, how was that? Right? Would that, how, anybody got any ideas of how that's going to work out? I can tell you. Like, if you're writing this down, you got problems that I probably can't help you with. Uh, but it's offensive on the face of it, isn't it? God comes to them and says, Hey, I have loved you. And their response is, How, how exactly is that, God? Life sucks. I don't know if you noticed. 
You know, we came back from Babylon. Actually, things in Babylon weren't half bad. We had the houses and we had gardens, public school systems, pretty decent there. We left there thinking we were the A-team of following you. We show up here. The temple that's been rebuilt, not great, God, honestly, not great. You, have you read the story about when they rebuilt the temple? They rebuilt it and they had a party. And the, the wailing was so loud about how sad they were about how terrible it was that they could hear it for miles around because they had remembered Solomon's temple and that thing was awesome. Flat panel TVs, stereo system, the whole nine yards. And they built this thing. It was basically a pile of rocks with a cave in it is, is how it seems. And like, this is how you're, this is blessing God. They were so disappointed in God. They were living in poverty. They were living under stress. They were living with difficulty. And they said, we were the faithful ones, God. We have showed up. We've done what's right. Dude, where are you at? Maybe you've learned to ride a bike or helped someone learn to ride a bike. What do you do when you're helping someone ride a bike? Well, maybe I shouldn't assume you know this, but you, know, you run along behind them. And some of you are going, no, you put them on a steep hill and see how it works. No, that's not how you do it. It's a terrible idea. So you're running along behind them and you're, you're holding the seat and you're running and then you discover how out of shape you are. And, and, uh, and, and you're running along and then you sort of let go a little bit and you grab on and let go. And what the kid, what does the kid always do when they're riding along and you're running along, you know, having s several heart attacks in a row? What does the kid say in the whole time? I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Oh, I'm amazing. But they don't know if you were to let go, they would completely wipe out. And this is what the people of God were missing in Malachi. God was holding them and carrying them and watching over them. But because God wasn't meeting their particular expectations, they're like, God's not here. God's not holding the seat. This is all up to me. They don't see God's hands. They only see the struggle they're enduring. So the struggle then impresses on their heart. God's not near. So therefore, God doesn't love so therefore, how could I possibly worship this guy from my heart? Sure, I'll show up to synagogue. Sure, I'll show up to the temple because if I don't, I'll be ostracized. But don't expect me to like it. Don't expect me to be into it. You say, how have you loved us? And isn't this what we did in the Garden of Eden? What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God, did God really say, you know what? If God really loved you, he'd let you eat all the trees in the garden. If God really loved you, he'd let you have this. In fact, in fact, I think it's quite clear, since you can't eat from this tree, how could this guy possibly love you? Why these limitations? Why these prohibitions? Think to the wilderness. The people of Israel have escaped Egypt by God's mighty in hand. They have crossed through the Red Sea, through the Red Sea. Now they're wandering in the wilderness and they have no food. And so what God does is set up a system where every single morning manna is on the ground. All they have to do is pick it up enough for that day and eat it. And what do they say after a time? Let's go back to Egypt. The manna is gross. That's all we have to eat. We had it so much better in Egypt. It was better to be in Egypt and feel like God wasn't near than to have found God and discover how disappointing he really is. Let's go back. And then you and I come to the cross. We read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and we read through there, and Jesus is paraded and humiliated, nailed to a cross, and we are told in the Bible that he died on that cross to take upon himself 
our sin. And so because of his actions on the cross, well, we can be forgiven. Because he walked out of that tomb, we will leave forever. And you and I say something like this. Well, you know what? I got problems. And my problems got problems. I don't know if forgiveness is in the top 10. So, you know, really appreciate the cross. But I just need some bills paid. I just need this person to get healthy. I just need a job. I just need my car to run. I just need my marriage to work out. I don't know what it is. And so we, we do the same thing. God, well, yeah, cross. Boy, that, you know, that was really great. Really lights out. I mean, good stuff. Uh, but I don't know if you noticed, brother needs something else. Is there any way we could do cross and hook me up with this other stuff I need? Right? Anybody in? Is it just me? Because it's going to be embarrassing if it's just me doing this. I need a lot of things. Forgiveness doesn't make our top ten. And so then we say, where's God? And what that is revealing is not that God is a problem to be worshipped. All it's doing is revealing some stuff going on in our heart that needs to be addressed. We're never going to be able to worship God if he's an, if he's an ogre. Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 15. Serious business, what's going on in our heart. And Jesus makes us uh, aware of how serious this is in Matthew 7, 15 to 23. Here's what it says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Uh, are figs from thistles? That's a tough one. I've never harvested figs, but I'm going to go with no as well. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will de declare to them, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. I, I rechanged the translation there a little bit at the end. So, here's, so we have to say the, the, the heart issue is the issue, isn't it? The question we have to confront is what's going on in our heart. The work of the gospel is a work in our heart. The work of the gospel is a realization in our inner person that we need God's grace and forgiveness today, and we need God's grace and forgiveness tomorrow, and we need his hand to carry us home. And we can, we can do good works, and we can be well-behaved, and we can keep our nose clean for a time, but at a certain point in our life, if our heart has not been changed by the gospel, we're going to run out of steam. And one of the things we need to do is when, when our heart grow cold, grows cold, we need to come back to God and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on in my heart. I need you to melt my heart again that I might have love and affection for you. Help me to see the value and beauty of the grace you have shown me on the cross. I want you to recognize me on that day. Time for worship. The obstacle to our worship is our cold heart. So the question is, how do we change our heart? Look at the rest of Malachi 1, 1 through 5. The end of verse 2 through uh, verse 5. Uh, and so I'm going to read it again and then explain some of the, the, the terminology in here to hopefully bring us up to speed. Uh, 
you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'm going to tear it down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say... Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Time for worship, eyes to see. The key to this passage we're looking at today is verse 5. So look at verse 5, maybe on the verse card, I can't remember. Your own eyes shall see this. You shall say what? Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The key to our heart being melted and being soft to the things of God is to see God for who he is and for what he is up to. A couple of things on the terminology here. Jacob and Esau, these are twin brothers. Their dad was a guy named Isaac. Esau was the oldest. Jacob was the youngest. When they were born, God said, one will serve the other. They're going to be two different nations. Jacob's family, Jacob's children are the people of Israel. Jacob was later renamed Israel. Esau, Jacob's twin brother, his descendants were the people of Edom the Edomites. So Esau, people of Edom, the Edomites, Jacob, Israel, the Israelites. And what God is saying here is he had already decided in advance that Jacob would be the one to bear his children and finally the Messiah. Esau, he knew, would reject him. And so God is saying, Esau, having rejected me, is going to receive the judgment of God. And he uses very harsh language there, doesn't he? It's offensive. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Saying, Jacob, who is redeemed and walking in the calling I have given him, has experienced my love, but the experience of Esau, because he has rejected me, has been uh, harsh judgment. Esau and the people of Edom bothered the Israelites all throughout their history. In fact, when the people of Israel were being uh, taken captive by the Babylonians, the Edomites would stand on the roadway and cheer for the Babylonians as they were dragging the captives by. And they would scream out really nice things like, kill their children, tear down their walls and burn their homes. And then if there were some Israelites hiding, the Edomites would go, over there, there's some more over there, you missed some. I mean, really bad dudes, right? And then so the people of Israel went to Babylon and they came back and God had judged the Edomites and they had suffered some damage. But now where the, Mal where the people were when Malachi was writing is their life was really hard and they would look over into the country of Edom and they go, man, it looks like things are going pretty good there. Their economy's pretty good. They've got 5G uh, on their cell phones. I don't understand. How come, how come the people following God Everything's lame, and the people who are rebelling against God, everything's awesome. Anybody ever thought this in your whole life? How come my neighbor, who couldn't find a good deed, if it hit him in the face, and a guy's getting his socks blessed off? I do something nice for somebody, and then I get insulted for it. And this is where the people of, of Israel were. The Edomites have done nothing but evil, and now things are going well. We have tried to be faithful. And now, God, where are you, bro? And God says, too short a period of time. Look over history. Edom can build and rebuild all they want. I am against them because they have rejected me. A day will come 
Edomites done. And that happened maybe two or three hundred years before Christ. Edom never existed again. They were completely wiped out by a greater power. And what he says is how we are going to have a heart of worship is when our eyes are opened to the greatness of God. He says, your own eyes will see this and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Edom has rejected God. Edom has opposed God. And God is telling Israel, if you wait, you will see the greatness of God even on the Edomites and you will proclaim how great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. You will see God's mighty hand, not just in your life, but you will see God's mighty hand in the entire world around you. We have this little small view. God would be faithful if he would just help me out with this little teeny area in my life. And God said, well, I'm with you, but I got things that are going on that if you were to see them, your head would explode. God said, I'm doing so many amazing things, and when history finally wraps up, you will see what I have done. And you will go, oh, man, why was I so worried? Our minds will be blown. And he says, you will see the greatness of God beyond the border of uh, Israel. God's greatness has primarily been shown to us at this moment in his justice for sin on, on the cross on Christ. God decided in advance to put the penalty for sin on Jesus and one day the world will see the greatness of that moment, but they haven't seen it yet, have they? They haven't. The world has disregarded God. The culture around us has disregarded God. But one day the world and us will see Jesus for who he really is, and we will go, that was incredible. And we will worship God because of his greatness. This is where worship comes from, where our hearts are melted with the love of God, and we see God for who he is, his greatness, and we are moved in mind, body, and soul to say, God, you are awesome. God, you are incredible, and we worship. All right, I'm going to ruin uh, Christian radio for you. Um, not all Christian radio. So I'm just, there's one station, I, I should say this, I, it's on my car. That's all I listen to, you know, so I don't want to say I'm not listening to it, but I need to correct something I hear. And this is not a local radio station. This is a national uh, radio. It's Christian radio. Play worship music, right? And they play worship music all the time. And that's great. I actually like it. I'm trying to give some qualification. I could tell you're tense. Like, what is he going to say? <laughs> Simmer down, okay? It's much worse than you can imagine. Um, okay, so every now and then what they'll do is they'll have this little thing to kind of a promo why we should be listening to the radio, uh, this particular station. They'll have, they'll have people who will share on the phone and say, oh, I love the music. I listen to the song. It's just what I needed to lift my spirits, okay? It's just what I needed that encouragement. I was going through a hard time. I heard the song, and it boosted me. It gave me that spiritual pizzazz, and I would make it through my day. And I wake up in the morning, and I listen to the worship music, and it charges my spiritual batteries, and I get going. So all that stuff is good. I'm down with all of that. I'm trying to be nice, but I, I may as well just pull the Band-Aid off, right? That's not worship. That's a, worship's not to make you feel good. Worship's supposed to make who feel good? God. Again, let's, let's pick on our marriages again. Go to your spouse and, and tell them you only help them because it makes you feel good. It's not because you love them, and it's not because you want to help them and you want their life to be easier. Uh, no, I, the only reason I help you is because it kind of gives me a warm feeling in my heart. And uh, 
Boy, yeah, if that were to go away, I'm going to kind of stop doing that. Why would we do that? We wouldn't do that. Worship is not for you. Worship is not for you. What is for us? The cross. That's kind of awesome. What's for us? An open tomb. What's for us? Eternal life in a home he has prayed for us, prepared for us. So what do we do? We then worship God. We have seen how great he is. We don't worship God because we need to feel good. We don't worship God because we need our batteries charged up. We worship God because he's worthy. And that's what's happened to the people Malachi is writing to. They are worshiping God, but it's not paying off. Life isn't getting better. They're not get winning the lottery. Church isn't that awesome. The temple isn't that great. And in fact, the people who go there are kind of lame too. So what's the point? And, and what the Bible does for us, is the, the point isn't you. The point is God, is God worth it? And if God isn't worth it, worship over time will be impossible. The way worship is powerful in our hearts is when our hearts are moved to recognize, I've seen God, he's great. He would forgive me? Some of you haven't figured this out yet, but sometimes you have a bad weekend, which means you're really naughty. I don't know how to say that nice. Like, you know, the stuff you really say, I'm never going to do that, and then uh, you get some spare time on your hands, oh, bummer, right? Maybe this doesn't happen to you. Maybe this never happened to you. But then you come to church, and you're feeling terrible, and, you know, I've got to go to church because I've sinned, and come to church, some guy gets up and yammers on about how you're forgiven, and also you go, wait, I am forgiven. And have you ever felt that moment? Again, I'm just going off of what other people told me. I've never had this happen. Um, I'm kidding. Where, where, where it just all clicks, like, wait, I'm forgiven. I don't have to walk around all shame. And then just, and you just breathe. Have you ever had that experience where, wait, oh, that's right, it's fine. God has forgiven me. And then, you, and then, and then a song comes on, and, and Seth and his crew are leading a song. Now all of a sudden you're singing a song. That's exactly what the Bible is describing here. Somebody who in a moment, realized God is great. He even forgave that. And our hearts are moved in gratitude to the great forgiving God that he sent Jesus. And so now we sing out like dead people who came to life because he would forgive a sinner like me. I might suggest for those of us who don't sin, we never get there because there's nothing to respond to because the greatness of God is the cross And if you're not sinning, God's not awesome. Hear what I'm saying, right? That could be misconstrued. Those of us who are still living with the difficulty of overcoming the realities of this life, we know God is great. Time for worship. Eyes to see, great is the Lord even outside the borders of Israel. Look at us, living on the other side of the planet from Israel, and we're worshiping God who died on a cross all the way on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago. Great is the Lord even beyond Israel. A couple of quick things, we'll close with this. God loves you, and as we sang earlier, God has engraved you on his hands. Our names as nail holes in his hands hand the cross is his single greatest expression of love toward us the question is will we receive it as believers 
will we recognize we need and receive grace again today? As believers, are we willing to set aside our ridiculous sense of self-righteousness and admit we still need grace again today? Are you willing today to recognize the thing you need from God, the thing you need from God is forgiveness, not whatever else is on that list? Second thing, some of us are here, and I describe that cold heart, and you're saying, that's me, cold, dead heart. Can't do a thing about it. What the Bible calls us to do is to give full voice to our doubt. Read the book of Psalms. There are some people in the book of Psalms with some bad attitudes. You think you have a bad attitude. Read the book of Psalms, you go, oh, actually, my attitude's not that bad. We ought to give full voice to our doubt. God, that guy yammered on about how great you are, not buying it. Give full voice to our doubt. However, what we do by faith is recognize the problem is not God, it's something going on in our heart. So we can move from there by faith into repentance. God, I don't see your greatness. My heart is cold. I don't want to worship you. And if you are going to change that, go ahead and do it. But you're going to have to change my heart. We don't pretend our heart isn't the way it is. We give full voice to it and call God to do a work in our heart. Finally, verse 5, great is the Lord. Are you impressed with God? However impressed with God you are, you're not impressed enough. He's better than however great you think he is. And the journey of the Christian life is, is engaging with him in prayer, engaging with him in our life, engaging with him in the word to recognize he is much greater than we could ever imagine. 